So um, thank you for coming. This is the second Sunday of our Global Outreach Sunday School Series. And today we are blessed to have David Walmer from Family Health Ministries here. He's the, the chairman and founder. And his wife, Kathy, is the, is the executive director. So we're going to hear from him about all the work they're doing in Haiti, and especially in this current situation where things are kind of rough. So thank you. Welcome, thank David. You. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I didn't know, we didn't know how many people here sort of knew much about us, so I prepared a little bit of just sort of background stuff, if that's okay. Um, but I just want to first off just say thank you. We, we are very grateful for the partnership um, that we've had over the years. Um, and if I'm in your way, I apologize. The, uh, th all this started happenstance in 1993. Um, our church just happened to be taking a second trip to Haiti and I was not planning to go and Kathy suggested I go, I don't know if she was getting rid of me. Or, <laughs> but uh, when we got down there, um, they let me leave our team and go spend a week with one of their OBGYN docs, a doctor named Jean-Claude Fertillian. We became friends. And that sort of changed the trajectory of my life. Um, when I left that after that week, actually in the middle of that trip, we, we went and saw a young woman who was 25 years old who was in septic shock and died from, a, from an infected cervical cancer. And when I left at the end of that week, John Claude said, you know, if you could help me with anything, it would be cervical cancer prevention. So later that year, they brought him up to do for some colposcopy training and got him some equipment and um, my, my, my background is I was a biochemist, then I went to medicine, OBGYN, and uh, then got um, distracted with global health. Um, so just a little bit about origins. So the, this relationship with Jean-Claude sort of became the, the foundation and the mission of what we do. And so the reason why we came up with this name was just the fact that, that the word family just responds to relationships. And, um, and I taught a, a course at Duke to divinity students and medical students for a number of years and came to define healing as restoring broken relationships. And, and then this idea of coming to serve. And the, the idea here, I mean, this is basically just how we describe friendship. And um, over the years, this has become, you know, very interesting, complex, you know, in trying to honor these friendships and respond to what they see as the community needs. Um, we sort of employ science, health, um, we, we grow spiritually. Um, I've, I've learned more uh, from them about that journey along the way, but it's just all these interdependence of these relationships. And um, I've learned a lot from the Haitian people along the way. And, and one of those things is just if you want to see the world more like it is, try to see it through the eyes of others. And then another thing is just within my own faith, um, I, I learned a new definition for evangelism. And with women in the poorest slum of the country, when I was coming and taking care of them, and, and they basically taught me that you don't ever have to con convince anybody to believe what you believe if you live your life as if you believe that way, which is how these, these women in cities of late were. So they're incredibly generous and loving um, when you come down. 
So the mission statement of Family Health Ministries is supporting Haitian communities and their efforts to build and sustain healthy families. So everything you'll see here, um, all of the staffing are people that live in the communities, the doctors, the nurses, and whatnot. The, uh, so it, a lot has changed in the 30 years we've been doing this. And one of the things that I noticed recently was that we started out with a logo that had bald heads on it. <laughs> we've, we've retained the bald heads. <laughs> Over the years. Um, so where do we work? So it, have, does anybody, have anybody not been down there where we are? I'm gonna just show you real quickly. Um, where we're located, where Haiti is, in our places. So, <clears throat> so Haiti is the western end of the island of the Santo Domingo, and it's shaped like this reverse C. And Port-au-Prince is this area right here, which is where most of the gang activity is. And what we're working is mostly out of here in the Lagon area. So we're beyond the reach of where most of the gang activity is. The danger is going back and forth. How many miles? So from Port-au-Prince to Lagon, it's about, 20, about 22 miles from Port-au-Prince out to Lagon. But it's, a, it's about three hours. <laughs> so... It can be, yeah, you're right. So, um, where we are in Lake. Is that very mountainous in there? It is, and I was going to show you that. So, we have a guest house and, a, and a, an HPV lab, which is located in uh, Laagon here. And I'll show you the guest house is. It's right there. There's the guest house. And if you go up into the mountains from there, let me find. Okay. So there's a there's a, a watershed area up in here. show it to you there we go so fond was where we started out but we built a, a women's health care center up here on this mountaintop and that's it right there and so you can see it's at the top of this watershed so all the health care that we're providing is to this rural mountainous area So there's a, there's a Haitian proverb, um, if they may read Paul, the book about Paul Farmer, Beyond, Beyond Mountains, it comes from a Haitian proverb, they won't be long, which means beyond the mountains, there are more mountains, because Haiti is very mountainous as a country. But what, what they use it for, usually things have second meanings to them. And so what they mean is that when I've solved this problem, there's another one after that. And in the 30 years we've been down there working, just a series of, of challenges that are constantly making it challenging to make things happen. And um, 
when the earthquake happened in 2010, we were right at the epicenter of that earthquake. And um, today, we're fortunate, the most recent thing that right is, is the gang violence, and we're fortunate that we're outside of that main sphere, but it does influence the people can't get food, access to food, their current history value, and it just makes life really tough. Do you have to go into the forest things when you're there? So, we actually have not traveled in several years now. And fortunately, because it's all Haitian run, we don't have to. But, you know, we, we would love to go down. Um, but we're actually told by our friend, when Leon comes next week to see you guys, what Leon will tell you and told us is that if you come, you not only put yourself at risk, you put others at risk. Because they can blend in. And they, they can go around, but if you show up, you help, you make them a target. So a target for the gangs. Yeah. So um, the, what's what's really complicated about this, and we can get into the history of all this if anybody wants to later, but these gangs are actually have ties to the government. And so and this this was linked to Aristide. When I first started going in 93, Aristide was um, chased out of the country by the military. When he was reinstated, he disbanded the military. And he was a, a peasant priest. And so if you're in the Haitian government, you need to have some kind of defense because your enemies are going to want to take you out. And so Aristide created these gangs from Sidi Soleil that he armed to be his defense. And that continued for several um, administrations. This past president was assassinated. And when he was assassinated, all the gangs that were, were organized just took over the country. And, and so now, and now it's a security risk for, for the whole region with drug running and you know, arms running and, and kidnapping and things like that. But what you can see is that the, the only way to get out to leg on is by this very narrow road. And so the gangs have a choke point here that they can control that access. What Michael usually does is drives over to Jacmel, takes a plane over to the airport, a small plane, and then flies in and out. So where we have focused most of our efforts in healthcare has been cervical cancer initially because that's what Jean-Claude asked us to do. And then we got more into maternal child health. And we're about to sort of expand into the world of hypertension as treatments. And the strategies is basically try to just determine what works in a low resource setting and then scale it up in the country. What did it back to that previous slide? Yes. The one, yeah. What, what's the relative incidence of these cervical, cervical cancer and breast cancer are the leading causes of cancer death. One, one woman, when we first started screening, one woman in 20 had cancer wow. in the population. And, and the interesting thing is that's why Jean-Claude was so insightful in picking this as something to go after. And actually, I think it's on, on his, one of the slides I'm going to show you in just a minute. But it's, um, it's incredibly prevalent, but it's also easily cured. It was, it was that prevalent in the United States before we started developing screening programs. Yeah. So basically, we, you know, they wanted to start out by doing what we did in the States. They wanted to do pap smears. We did pap smears, and, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with this, but oops, the slides are missing. But there's... Um, we expected to find a lot of, a lot of 
dysplasia, precancer, and not much cancer. What we found was a lot of cancer and not much treatable disease. And so being a, a biochemist and a scientist, I said, we gotta figure this out. So what we discovered was, was that on the pap smears, the slides with the cells, there was so much obscuring inflammation that you were not seeing the cells of interest. So, and there were only 10 pathologists in the country, so that was almost a blessing in disguise. So what we found was that looking at the surface, you can see the lesions that you're missing on patients. That was a better way to screen. And so then we, knowing that, we invented these colposcopes are, you know, five, ten thousand dollars We sort of invented a portable colposcope that was fairly inexpensive, um, starting out with uh, a bicycle halogen headlamp and a green camera filter and uh, some surgical loops. Um, over time, though, we learned that probably a better primary screen is looking for the virus that causes the cancer. And we've now screened over 30,000 women. About 20% of the population is positive. But the reason why this is so important is that if you, when you do a pap smear or you look, you might miss disease. You may still have it. But if you don't have the virus, you're not going to die from it. So if you do the HPV testing first, you can focus on that 20% and ignore the 80%. If you start out with psychology or looking at the cervix, you've still got a woman, you've got to keep following because there's some risk that she's going to die. The other advantage of this is the fact that we now know that you don't need a clinician, that women can do self-collected samples and test for the virus. And so you can just have a public health clinic and do that. So, um, Along the way, we, we had some pathology friends that have helped us, you know, doing this research, bringing in technology, and we now have digital pathology labs set up in two, two different places in the country to support some of the stuff we're doing. Um, as far as treating the lesions, the best way to treat them is just to ablate the cervix. You can just cause the external cells to die and fall off, and you just reset the clock. Well, most people just use a freezing process with nitrous oxide, we started ramping up a program and realized there wasn't enough nitrous oxide in the country to support a national program. So we, we found a technique that was being used in, in Northern Europe where you heat the cervix and so there's no need for gas to be able to do that. So we've, we've now screened about 4,000 women doing that. So the idea is now we think we've got a good strategy for doing this but we're affecting a small population. So how do we scale it up? So um, we, we know that in order to do this, that we need to work together. And to be able to sort of <coughs> get that, we've created a red cap registry, and then we've gotten, um, oops, let me go to here first. Um, we've, we've, we've had a meeting here in Durham where we got NGOs together to say, would you guys be interested in working with them? And they said yes. So we, we formed this organization called Haitian Circle of Cancer, which now has 35 NGOs that are working together with the Haitian Ministry of Health, the Haitian OBGYN Society, and a group called GSCC, which is a, a sort of the, co the uh, Cohen Foundation for Breast Cancer in Haiti. It's a community advocacy group. We started meeting in, in Port-au-Prince, <clears throat> met a couple of times and then COVID, gangs, and we haven't been able to meet. So we actually have a meeting scheduled here at Duke next May 
where we're bringing all those people together here uh, and bring that, the doctors and things up to help scale this up. But we've now gotten HPD labs scattered across the country. We've got a registry where people can enter the data um, uh, on, on a bigger scale and or continue to do research and that sort of thing. One of the dilemmas is that um, as part of our expansion, we, we started helping uh, Carrots Foundation, which is screening women that have HIV. And it's not 20%, it's 70% of those women. And so it's not, you, you, you can't treat 70% of the population. So we now need a strategy that will help us figure out how to identify women with high-grade lesions, not just having, having the virus. So, um, so how are we gonna do that? Well, there, there are new technologies out there that have evolved since we started this. There's a company in Greensboro which has got this um, system where the, it automates the, the creation of the cytology slides. It gets rid of the inflammatory cells. The computer, what a pathologist normally does is they'll count 200, 500 cells on the slide as representative. What this computer does, it scans the entire slide and then puts the cells of interest into a library that a pathologist can go look at and instead of spending, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15 minutes in, in 30 seconds, they can make a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to do the HPV testing um, with, theoretically, if, if this works. We'd use HPV testing as well, but this might be a co-test. Um, the other thing that's out there, though, is that they're now doing AI, artificial intelligence, scanning images. So we knew that, that um, looking at the lesions was helpful in mosaicism with different patterns. So people are now getting NIH grants to take images, high-resolution images, putting them into a computer, correlating it. So we're going to look at that as a, as a possible um, thing. Anyway, so we've gotten a whole bunch of people to um, donate all of this technology and we're going to do a, a, tet, a trial with, for, of a thousand HIV positive women and we're waiting until things get safe enough that we can go down there and get that done. So, but all of this stuff involves a lot of people so it's not just the, the little bit that we're doing. So then since Family Health Ministries is about supporting HIVs and their efforts to, to build sustained healthy families, how do we decide what the community needs are? And what we've learned is over the years is assuming what they are does is not a good strategy, you know. So over the years, we've had many, many projects where we go in and we just ask questions and do surveys to figure out what's going on. So you ask, you know, what's the instance of hypertension or whatever. And so these are all student projects that we've done over the years that have involved research ethics, cervical cancer, contraception, maternal child health over the years. And this is an example, one of these things. So when we were in Fanwa, um, we, we discovered that 85% of women were delivering their babies at home, unattended, far from the road. So the question is, and, and the maternal mortality is very high. Um, when you look at the instance of maternal mortality, they are Hades at the, at the, the high end of it. So we're thinking this has got to be a very risky behavior. So the question is, if you build a women's center, will women come? So Kay Weigert, um, 
What's causing mortality? Is it infection? Oh, it can be all kinds of things. Um, There's no predominating um, so the, there is a lot of hypertension in pregnancy. There's a lot of, of uh, I mean, I mean, w when I went into medicine, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a psychiatrist or a gynecologist. <laughs> um, and, but having gone into OBGYN, the first week I was on labor and delivery, what I realized is labor and delivery is an emergency because things go south really fast. And if you're delivering in a place where you've got facilities to take care of it, almost all the time, women, God gave pregnancy to young women for a reason. They, they can withstand these huge insults and come out and do really well. But if you're off by yourself, you know, whether it's hypertension or, uh, you know, placenta that's separating or an infection um, or a baby, you know, they're, they're, they have these traditional birth attendants that are just family members taught people how to deliver babies. And you come out and get a, a, a floppy baby, that baby may not get resuscitated. You know, just a little bit of stimulation teaching them how to do that. And one of the student research projects was one of our, our midwives who went and did training of the traditional birth attendants on things like neonatal resuscitation and stuff like that. So it's... Um, so basically, what uh, Kate basically did was she went out and GPS mapped the houses and, and studied births over the last 15 years in the community. And basically what she learned was that, um, there, you know, a predominant number of percentage of women would, would want to deliver babies in a hospital, but they're too far from the road, too far from the nearest town, and they're afraid that they're gonna deliver on the way or that they'll get there and have no money, they'll get turned away, kind of a thing. So um, in essence, only about 14% were trying to get to a hospital. The, at least 60 plus percent said they wanted to deliver. So that led us to building, uh, and this is just that same conclusion, the building Linus Center. So when we first started going to Fondland in 1996, Sister Carmel, who had just arrived there, and she was a local community nurse. And um, she um, unfortunately um, developed uh, hepatitis, liver cancer, and hepatitis C from one of her patients down there and ended up passing away. And she was just an icon of, of healthcare in this community. So we ended up building this health center, and that's why it's called the Carmel Volunteer Women's Health Center. It's really like we're carrying on her work. The community. Um, we, she passed in 2012. We opened the center in 2014. Um, initially, we just had the resources to provide prenatal care, postnatal care, and that sort of thing. But as of 2020, we now have 24/7 labor and delivery services in this community, which never had health care in the mountains at all. We have an OBGYN, a family nurse practitioner and midwives that are up working in that community. Um, when you have an emergency and you need a C-section or something like that, it's 45 minutes down the mountain either way. So they're asking for an operating room and we're, we've raised $150,000 and we need 75 more to build this operating suite that's there or we're about to start 
start construction. <laughs> just the idea that you'd be able to do a, a C-section in the middle of these mountains where there was no health care is just really pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and so we did a study um, along these lines and one of the things we did was there's something called ankle brachial indices where you take the systolic blood pressure centrally but also peripherally. And what that does is that's a, a marker of of central arterial disease, you know, rigid vessels. And what we learned was that in the age group that we're taking care of, we're not seeing signs of central disease yet. And we didn't do, have a lot of older people, but we're gonna continue these measurements so we can see when does this disease progression happen in this population and can we delay it. So um, it's a little bit more than just taking blood pressures. Um, doing essentially what Sister Criminal started in the community. Um, the staff continues and her vision is our journey. So um, that's it. So thank you very much. <laughs>